0: It's me. I just wanted to tell you ahead of time, this episode is really, really good. Like, really good. You know what else is really good? Supporting this podcast. We're doing our best to pump out as many episodes as possible. And for as little as $3 a month, you could help us do a lot more. $3. Like, if you went to Starbucks nowadays, you probably can't even get a cup of water for that price. But you can support this podcast for that much. Just visit patreon.com forward slash WTDT and become a patron today. Give, and it will come back to you. So here's us giving. And boy, is this episode giving.
1: If you need to sit in the gate of the city that you choose to live in, mm-hmm. looking for innocent people to spare and protect, hey, we'll just sleep in the city. It's like, no, you don't want to sleep in the city. Well, then why do you live in it? There's so many questions that start running through one's mind. Yeah. There's still an instinct towards good, right? His instinct towards good is to try to help people, but there's also this pull of comfort in a place he shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. I just We can't overlook this. This battle, this struggle is real. That you can have an inclination towards right while also having an infatuation with things that are wrong.
0: I'm Dean Cullenane and you're listening to Why They Did That, a show that explores the motivations of biblical characters and how their choices can guide yours. This episode features a Why They Did That favorite, and a Dean Cullenane favorite too. You'll be delighted to hear that he was very recently married, Sorry, ladies, you took too long, and that one's on you. And he's still just as sold out for Jesus as he was before, if not more now. D. Casper, a brother to me not only in Christ, but in almost every other perceivable way bar blood, will be taking us into one of the Bible's darkest stories. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But we're not here to discuss why the city went up in flames or what the sins of the people were and how they relate to today. No, today we want to talk about Lot. And in all honesty, how on earth this man was even saved? Lot's story is perhaps one of the most bizarre in scripture. Essentially, he's a side character that thinks he's the main character. He separates himself from the wise elder, his uncle and heir to the promise of God, Abraham, and sets off on his own journey without Abraham and without God.
1: It reminds me of this quote that I heard some time ago that has really stuck with me, that when God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. Part of the, what you see here is there's this kind of presumption that I've got a devotional life. I know what to do. Like, I know it's not the best environment, but I can handle it. Mm. And any time we go into decisions with that type of mindset, it's always going to get the best of us. Right. Right? Whenever human pride and and asserting of ourselves, it doesn't go well. And so he chooses. He comes from a godly family, right? A man who's committed, who raises up altars everywhere he goes. a man who, who struggles at times. Mm-hmm. But... um, It's almost as if he's banking on some of those things to just, you know, there's a difference between being a spiritual person and being comfortable in spiritual environments. Mm. There's a difference. And Abraham was a spiritual person who struggled at times. The way that we see Lot is more that he's comfortable in spiritual environments, but we even see that he'll find himself comfortable in non-spiritual environments because he isn't a fully spiritual person in the way that he's
0: making decisions and doing daily life. In many ways, that's the most attractive Christianity. In that you can, oh, I read the Bible, I pray, I go to church, I call on the name of the Lord when I'm in dire situations, but the heart isn't fully committed. There's no sacrifice necessary nor needed. And I can still then play with my toys. Yeah. You know, I can still have the things that everyone else said they had to give up for the lord well you know i'm i'm spiritual and i can i can handle these things and i think that is one of that's one of the biggest errors this idea that one can be both spiritual and carnal yeah when the scripture is saying those two things are at war against
1: each other. You can't fight both sides of the war. Living according to the flesh or according to the spirit, like the Romans eight kind of contrast. Yeah, that's exactly right. This idea of a dual citizenship, right? Mm. Like he's rocking a a dual citizenship that I'll I'll, I'll try to follow God while also getting mine. Mm -hmm. And it isn't that God doesn't bless people, right? Like God blesses his people who follow him. But the point is when you presumptuously make decisions that put yourself and your family in harm's way, You cannot expect the provision and protection of God to follow that decision. And that's what happens. You get to chapter 14, and in chapter 14, Sodom is sacked. Uh, There's a rebellion amongst the kings of the land. Sodom gets sacked, and Lot is taken captive because he found himself in
0: Sodom. So we have a progression. Yes. Because at at the, the end of 13, it just tells us that his tent is in the direction of Sodom. He hasn't just moved straight into the city. That would be ludicrous right. you know. even someone whose decision making is as questionable as lots isn't going to go that far you know oh i can have wherever i want i'm going to head into that wicked city but and this is just true to life there is a, a gravity to the world that you can't just hover around it without being pulled in you know right. bit by bit it's it's going to take you and yeah it is it's it's presumptuous of us and yet we we find ourselves tempted to do it more often than not to believe i can handle it and i can be this close without being affected
1: yeah this idea that you know i'd never be caught dead doing fill in the blank Mm -hmm. but i do watch it on netflix and it doesn't bother me right i listen to music that endorses it i hang out with people at work and they tell dirty jokes and i laugh too Mm -hmm. but deep down like ah, a little bit of me feels uncomfortable and this is kind of where he seems to find himself because it, we get to chapter 14 of verse 12. They also took Lot when they take people captive from Sodom, Abraham's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom mm. and his goods and departed. So he's taken captive. At this stage, Lot can be thinking that he's reaping the consequences of a bad decision. Right. I never should have been here. I'm receiving a judgment from God potentially. Regardless, it's not a good circumstance. The protection of God has not helped me in this moment. And you just think like, man, this is terrible. But what I love is the mercy of God is woven all throughout these selfish decisions that Lot makes. Mm. Even though he didn't make the right decision, God's mercy follows him into this God-forsaken land. And so word gets to Abraham that he's been taken captive and it says in verse 14, he heard that his brother was taken captive. He armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went to pursuit as far as Dan. They attacked the bad guys. They bring them all back. This is where you hear about Melchizedek that Abraham uh, gives a tithe of what was given. He says, No one's going to make me rich. I won't take the goods from it. And he offers a tithe mm-hmm. uh, with through the servant, um, the priest Melchizedek, and so forth. And That's basically it. We see this here, but this is kind of the warning shot moment for a lot. For those who ever lived in the deep South and in America uh, and other places, right? The warning shot is basically, I'm reloading, get off my property because Mm -hmm. the next one's coming for you. This is that moment for him that Mm -hmm. I haven't made a good decision. It's enough to shake him, to wake him up and to be in a scenario where, okay, I'm not going to make that decision again. But the unfortunate truth of the matter is he goes right back in.
0: Yeah. Deeper.
1: Deeper, yeah, even more deep. And, and that's the scary thing, you know, like the pandemic, when that happened, some of us were really rocked, right? Like all of our toys, uh, a friend of mine did a, a message called When the Music Stops. And this whole idea that like all the noise that we'd been living in for a moment stopped and we mm. were hearing our own thoughts mm. and the truth. And we realized, man, I'm not really in the best of places. And that interlude could have been a real gift to Lot to point him back in the right direction. But his decision, once that kind of wears off, right? Because you get scared sometimes. Stuff happens, like you almost get arrested for something Mm -hmm. when you were really pushing borders and you shouldn't. Oh, God, if you just get me out of this. Mm -hmm. But once the storms settle, oh, it really wasn't that big a deal, right? Right? You hit the snooze button and you just roll back over. Yeah. And this is what happens with him. He goes back in Sodom. And so it's just heartbreaking to see this. He's not aware of the fact, right? He didn't know when he was taken captive that someone was coming to save him. Lot wasn't aware of this, and yet Abraham, I love the fact that Abraham wasn't passive. Mm-hmm. Because he said, well, I'll pray for him. Right. I'm gonna get in and get involved. Right? Because Abraham knew about the place, right? He knew what went on there, and mm-hmm. it was troubling. And yet in this scenario, he goes and gets him.
0: And he rushes in without even having the fulfillment of God's promise to him. That's right. He risks his life a lot knowing that God said, you have a special work to do you know you're gonna bless the whole world that's right Um, and he still he still risks everything to save his nephew and he needn't have had to be put in that situation had lot really just thought and more so thought really prayed and asked the lord is this where i should be is this the direction i should be taking my life and my family's life
1: that's exactly right and you also see this idea of there's no appreciation from Lot for the pursuit of God in his life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When God spares him and sends help, his response is not to change course and choose to honor God going forward. It's to, oh, that was uncomfortable. But anyway, back to where we were. Right. And that's scary. And, and that's convicting even, mm-hmm. right? Because we've been there where God intervenes in a powerful way, never doing that again. And we find ourselves going right back to those same patterns, those same habits, Kind of blurring those same boundaries but the mercy of god keeps pursuing this man not to placate the sin not to say it's okay right but to show him even though you're making selfish decisions that doesn't change my desire and my love and my my
0: longing for you to be in a better scenario this uh reminds me of the story of that christian pastor who you know he's he's posturing for i think it was almost 20 years at this point yeah. And someone asks him the question, what difference does God make? Like, does it really matter if God is involved in the decisions that you're making? Or now that you're a Christian, does he just bless everything you do? And, and I can imagine a hundred better ways to answer this question. But the pastor says, well, you know what? To find out what difference God makes, like if the decisions that he wants me to make are good for me or not, I'm going to take a year out from God like a sabbatical, if you will. And he says, I'm going to stop praying. Uh, I'm going to stop reading the Bible. I'm going to stop even referencing God's name. I'm going to, you know, no longer give him credit for when things happen. Like, I'm just, I'm not going to be a Christian for a year to see what difference God makes. And it makes so much of a difference that he becomes an atheist. Mm. And there's been an atheist now for almost a decade. And we see this, this idea, like we know that we're not safe for an hour without god that's right you know to to keep god from from a decision as serious as this is so perilous it's suicidal almost um and yet we have you know the example of of this pastor who takes a year away from god becomes an atheist and lots on that same trajectory he's leaving the lord
1: yeah he's making enough decisions of his own volition, without consulting God, that this is exactly where this can go. Mm-hmm. There's There seems to have been enough of a framework from the example of Abraham to keep him from completely checking out, Right, but the trajectory is not looking promising either. Mm-hmm. It's true. It seems like it's just a matter of time. If you gave him more time in there without any form of intervention, where would this man be is mm. a very good question. Thankfully, we don't have to find out what that looks like because God will indeed intervene. But this reminds me even of Genesis chapter 15 because in the next chapter, Abraham struggles again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In chapter 15, it says, after all these things, the word, this is chapter 15 and verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your exceedingly great, your, your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And you would assume in this moment, he's gonna say, amen, Jesus, you're everything I've been looking for. Mm-hmm but he's been waiting for a while. God has made promises to him that have not materialized, and it stings. Mm. And I'm sure we've been there, where God has given us a promise, he's placed seeds of hope in our heart, we're prisoners of hope, uh, as it says in the Old Testament. And we just find ourselves kind of captives in this sense, but he hasn't really done what he said he would do. And Abraham, in a moment of weakness, says, well, no, you're not, Mm. actually. You've promised me kids, and I don't have kids. I'm childless. I'm childless. Eliezer, a servant of my house, is going to be my heir. I don't understand what's going on here. And God loves him through this and says, let's go for a walk. Mm. He takes him outside and points to the stars and says, my promise to you has not changed. And as you alluded to earlier, that God had given a call to Abraham that I will use you to change the world, and he risked that going after Lot to save him. The very next chapter, God reminds him of that original call. Mm. As he's starting to feel troubled, right, by the waiting and just wondering when is God going to do what he said that he would do. And it reminds him, My promise is still true. Mm. You will bless the world. And it says there that he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed in him, he believed in the promised Messiah. Mm -hmm. And this was counted for righteousness. I think this is so important that even righteous people can struggle with believing that God is enough. God literally tells him, I'm enough. And Abraham, a guy who does want to follow God, he's not making near as bad a decisions and casting off consulting God first mm. as Lot did. But even he struggles with this, and we can too. And what I love is God doesn't shame us and beat us up for that. He takes us for a walk. He reminds us. He reminds us of what's true. Everything I told you before is still true.
0: It is true. And yet it can be so hard to believe sometimes. Yeah, think of this. God is more acquainted with our struggles than anyone else. He gets that it can be hard. And so I think that's why he does everything he can to make it as easy as possible. He works with us exactly where we are. We see this with people like Abraham, who basically traffics his wife and gets his teenage handmaiden pregnant, and God still calls him friend. He still makes promises to him, and he still keeps those promises. And it's on one of those occasions when Jesus visits Abraham that they stand together and watch over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus wants to share his plans with Abraham. You see, the outcry against these cities is so great. The cup of their sins is overflowing. And so Jesus visits the cities. Before calling down fire, literally, He investigates, not just so he can say, hey, let the records show I was there, but because he is genuinely, literally looking for a reason to save. It's why he communed with Adam before the fall. It's why he reached out to Cain before the first murder. It's why he visits the Tower of Babel before the languages are changed. God's will, friends, is to save. But here's the thing. The power to save is God's. But the decision to be saved is ours.
1: Imagine the mercy of God in this. Because, you know, nowadays, when a when a disaster happens, you can go on Facebook and say so-and-so marked themselves safe Hmm. during the typhoon and wherever, right? Right. Or the hurricane and wherever. That's not going to be the case for Abraham back in the day. They don't have Facebook, they don't have iPhones. So imagine how Abraham is going to feel when tomorrow morning he walks out his tent door and sees a mushroom cloud coming out of Sodom. Mm. A son of his is there, basically, mm-hmm. right? He's, he's his nephew, but it's really a son to him. Right. He's going to be deeply worried, and the heart of Jesus longs for him in this. right? The heart of God, knowing what it's like to love your children, doesn't want Abraham to go through that, so they tell him what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And as a response to this, Abraham then says, Would you also, verse 23, destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be uh, as the wicked. Far be it from you. And then he closes by saying, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham now clearly, uh, this was just a a passerby Mm. at the beginning. Now Abraham realizes who he's speaking to and says, would this be fair? If there were people that still had a hope for righteousness in that city, would you do this? Mm -hmm. Then he barters with God, right? Right. He barters with them, gets it down to 10. And this is the fascinating thing. When you get to Genesis 19 uh, in the next chapter, what you see is he says, what about 10? Mm. Well, if you do the math, you've got Lot and his wife. That's two. He has two virgin daughters that he'll offer. That's three and four. Then he has sons-in-law. That's at least four more people, two more sons-in-law, and then two more daughters. That's eight people, minimum, that
0: are Lot's direct, immediate family in that city. So essentially, if Lot has gone in there and actually done what one would assume a Christian would do in such an environment, i.e. be a witness, then if he's even just changed two people's lives... Which it seems Abraham is confident of, because he's like, we only need ten, then the whole place gets to stand. Yeah, but that's not at all why Lot went in.
1: Yeah, and this is the scary part. It's beautiful in this sense that Abraham is so tenacious in his intercession, and there, there's a testimony for us here, right? Mm. There, there's a, the lesson for us here that Abraham chooses to labor for this guy and to pray, and the and the decisions that Lot is making do not warrant the grace and favor that he's receiving. Mm. He's not even grateful for it, right? To be someone who's struggling and needs a lot of grace to get on the other side, that's one thing. But to be wholly ungrateful and indifferent to God's divine intervention in your life is a very dangerous place to be. Mm. But the good news is God still hears the prayers of those who are in that situation. Some of us have stories. We were in the world, we were lost. Our parents prayed Mm. and they didn't stop praying even though it got messy. Our decisions got worse and worse and worse. We got further and further and further from God, but their divine, divinely inspired, tenacious prayers are the reason that we're back where we are today. So many people have that story. Lot has that story. Abraham first saves him with a sword, and now Abraham's saving him by prayer. So eventually Jesus agrees to 10, and then Jesus begins his walk towards Sodom. And at this stage the angels have arrived in Sodom. So the two angels left while Jesus spoke with Abraham. The two angels have now arrived and Jesus is now walking from Abraham's tent to Sodom. He's not in the city at this stage. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how long this takes, how long this process was, but this is just kind of the narrative to keep track of who's where. So the the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, it says in chapter 19 of verse one, and Lot's sitting in the gate. This is fascinating to me. He's sitting there almost looking for people who don't belong. And his first instinct is to try to protect them. But here's the question. If you need to sit in the gate of the city that you choose to live in, mm-hmm. looking for innocent people to spare and protect, hey, we'll just sleep in the city. He's like, no, you don't want to sleep in the city. Well, then why do you live in it? There's so many questions that start running through one's mind. Yeah, There's still an instinct towards good, right? His instinct towards good is to try to help people but there's also this pull of comfort in a place he shouldn't be. And mm-hmm. I just, we can't overlook this. That this battle, this struggle is real, that you can have an inclination towards right while also having an infatuation with things that are wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: And that that tug of war on the inside is so costly. Thank God for the fact that there's some inkling towards the right, but that inkling will get weaker and weaker and weaker as you continue to gain comfort around the things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. And, for, and it's going to take a divine intervention. It's going to take disruption, a miracle to get us out. Yeah. The ironic thing is him seeking to save these men is what leads to him being saved by these men. Mm-hmm. That little instinct towards right. He wasn't saying, oh, thank God someone's here that wants to do the right thing. You know what? Can I just leave with you? That isn't where he's at. But because there's still some glimmer of right in this man's heart, right? Some fondness towards the things that are right. This literally saves his life. Mm. So as he invites these men into his home, they no, no, we'll be fine. He says, No, no, please, you need to come to my house. This place isn't safe. He gets to the house, they get to the house, then the men of the city show up, they knock on the door, they have an unholy request. We won't, we won't spend too much time on that. It's not good. And as this back and forth goes on, eventually the, the men try to come after Lot. They try to push down the door. And it says something in verse 11 that the angels pull Lot inside of the house with their hands in verse 10. And in verse 11, they struck the men who were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so they became weary trying to find the door. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But this is, this is where he gets real. Mm-hmm. And the angels tell him now, Have you anyone else here, verse 12, son-in-law, sons, daughters, whoever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. This is a very clear message. This isn't, hey, doesn't look that great, we're starting a tribunal.
0: This place is going down. And he's received ample warning just in their presence. He's witnessed the blindness strike the men. Yes. So he knows that this is not just two random guys. That's true. That these are these are special. These guys are different. And if they're saying it's going down, you need to believe it's going down.
1: And you almost get the
0: idea that he kind of
1: he's not really that urgent per se. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if it's like, oh yeah, you're right. Let's uh, let's uh, we we're, we're gonna get a U-Haul next week. We're gonna go sell some stuff give some things to goodwill. Like there's not this real sense of pressing urgency as you see his story go on, but they tell him to go warn your family. So he goes to his sons-in-law and, uh, it says that it, he seemed to them, it seemed to them that he was joking, right? Can you imagine? Arise, take everybody out of here, but it says that they seemed to be joking. This is verse 14. Get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this place. Now, why would they think he's joking? Hmm. We'll come back to that, but I think this just should start sowing seeds. Things aren't lining up. You see him doing the right thing in certain instances, but you see other stuff that just doesn't look right, doesn't jive. And I think it should kind of cause us to do some internalizing here and ask ask why this is here. So he has no luck. He doesn't get those two daughters and those two son-in-laws out. They don't budge. They think he's joking. They go on with their lives. Right? It's like they slam the door in his face and go back to watching sitcoms or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. Then verse 15, it says that the angels hurried a lot saying, get out of here. You, your wife and your two daughters, the two virgin daughters were in the house, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And it says, while he lingered, the men had to take hold of him physically. He has no sense of appreciation of the intervention and grace and mercy of God. Now, I, we wanna focus on that. God is still showing him mercy. They already warned him once in the house he tells his sons-in-law, he's still lingering, then they actually manhandle the guy. They handle a man and they pull him out of the city. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so thankful for this, that in those moments when we can just be dumb, slow, confused, sometimes we're so bewitched by the things that we've entangled ourselves with, we just can't think clear enough. And I thank God for the fact that he's even willing to go so far as to do whatever it takes to get us out of that city. Take us by the hand if he has to, to allow circumstances to physically remove us because we wouldn't have made that decision on our own.
0: The mercy of God is incredible. The prophet Isaiah asked, is his ear too far away that he cannot hear you? Is his hand too short that he cannot save? He can save. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to save. The question is, And this is genuinely my question, why is he able, or even allowed, to do that? To just grab Lot and take him out? To save his life? Almost by force? Well, you're just going to have to stick around to find out. I'm Dean Cullinane, and you're listening to Why They Did That.
2: For young people, the question always comes, what's next? Well, here's an idea, CORE. CORE is a discipleship and evangelism training program that runs for nine months. In that short amount of time, you will learn everything you need to know to become an effective soul winner, as well as having the tools you will need to ensure that your walk with God remains rooted in Jesus Christ. They will teach you how to do and give Bible studies, how to do effective literature evangelism, give you tools to improve your mental health and how to help others with their struggles too, how to minister to people through health evangelism. And you'll also learn how to engage in cross-cultural missions through a nearly two-week mission trip, all in the context of a safe and healing community that is there to support you in your journey. For more information, go to coreevangelism.com. History shapes identity, identity shapes mission, and a clear mission determines the trajectory of your future. Knowing where you come from is key to understanding your present purpose and your future mission. Linear's Journey is a series of videos that will take you on a journey through time, discovering the key people and events that have shaped the Christian faith. From the Waldenses to Martin Luther to Zwingli, from England to France, Switzerland to Germany, the light broke over the horizon of Europe, piercing through the dark ages and then spread out over the world. As the United States of America rose to supremacy, Christianity formed the bedrock of this great nation. And so from the great awakening to the great disappointment and beyond, lineage follows the journey of God's church throughout time, immersing you in the places, the stories and the people through whom Christianity has shone the brightest. Join us on a journey through time. Follow us on social media at Lineage Journey or check out our website at lineagejourney.com.
0: So many people are banking on this idea that they can just have their cake and eat it that they can live in Sodom and Gomorrah and see the sky light up in flames and know that that is the time to pack their bags and head back to Jesus. Because God is faithful, right? He'll save us. Lot is saved by fire, from fire. But the question, the real question that we must ask is how much does he lose in that process?
1: This, this is the heartbreaking part of this story. There are huge consequences that we overlook when we just bank on the fact that maybe someone will, or I know enough about the end time scenario or what's going to happen, that I basically need to set my watch. And once I see stuff like this, hmm. then I'll start boarding at the windows, then I'll start my kind of glacial shift out of this place. This is so dangerous to think this way. And... Part of it is because we don't actually believe that God is enough. The whole reason why we leave the church, why we leave this environment, is because we think that we're missing out on something. We don't mm. actually believe that God has enough for
0: us, or He doesn't have enough for us here, but He has enough for us in the kingdom. Right. So we'll try and like you know make the most of this life and then reap the benefits of of the eternal reward. We'll try to get the retirement plan right and and sneak in on, on a technicality
1: in the end. This is such a dangerous place to be because you don't have the guarantee that you will have the soundness of mind mm. to even realize what's going on and what you need in
0: that moment. One. And two, you also don't have the guarantee that you have the desire to get out. And even if you did, even let's say you have the soundness of mind and you knew, like somehow, you just knew. Would you, before the fact, be willing to sit down if someone put this on the table for you and said, you can live however you want. Indulge. You know, like, feel free to partake of all of the lusts that you have. And at the end, you'll be saved. Let's say that was a promise given, but your wife's going to be lost. Both your daughters are going to be lost, or two of the four of your daughters are going to be lost. Their husbands, your family essentially, mm-hmm. is going to be lost, but you'll be saved. Would you go into that and accept it? Of course you wouldn't. That's absurd. But that's the decision that he's making. This decision to feel like, I can live in Sodom and I can take it all on, I can sit at the gate and still be a good person in this terrible environment. And at the end, there goes the light switch. I'm coming coming straight out and I'm, I'm with the Lord. But the cost of that kind of decision, we won't even know. We won't know until the time comes and people are in this situation. Like, yeah, you might make it to the kingdom by the hair of your chinny chin chin, but how many are going to be lost how much more populated could the kingdom of heaven be if you decided to give god your life now instead of right at the end
1: the question comes why did his sons-in-law think he was joking Mm. this is such an urgent matter he seems to make a passionate appeal why do they think he's joking well imagine being his sons-in-law They just had Christmas dinner, for you know illustration's sake. They just had Christmas dinner, no one's worried. Yeah, Just had an Easter loaf, no one's worried. Mm-hmm. Lot shows up in May, freaked out. You gotta get out of here, this place is so bad, it's so wicked, God's gonna destroy it. And the sons of laws are thinking, uh, you know, you didn't seem to be this worried a week ago. And if this place really is all that bad, well then why do you live here? Why are your daughters our wives? Why did you raise your family here, and why is your whole life intermingled with a place that you say is so
0: bad. And I think this is where this idea of faith and works coming together is is most prevalent. Like, you can't just be a secret believer. You can't be an undercover Christian and then just hope that your final message is going to be what's, what turns the tide. Like, you look at Noah, for example. Noah wasn't just going around preaching that a flood was coming. He was building an ark. And essentially, Lot's now in Sodom saying another flood is coming, you know, a flood of fire this time. But they look and they don't see an ark. Yeah. They don't see that he has been preparing for this. He's clearly never spoken about any of this kind of thing. Like He's coming in talking about the Lord. They're like, the Lord who? You've, you've kept this quiet for a long time. And all of a sudden, we're meant to believe you. And this is going to be the testimony, I think, of many in the world who right now are in our sphere of influence, and we're choosing to remain silent in times of peace. When times of chaos come upon us, our words are gonna fall on deaf ears. Yeah, they're gonna laugh. I mean, imagine your coworkers. You've been
1: telling dirty jokes with them all week, but you go to church on the weekend. They don't know. They have no idea what your life looks like, for some of us, right? Not Mm -hmm. everybody, but just imagine if my story looks like this, and one day I realize stuff's getting real. I need to tell my coworkers. They're going to laugh in your face. Yeah. What 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 is this holy roller business? Like are you serious? You've been doing the same stuff we've been doing last week and you're calling me out. Right? Are you crazy? And so I think this is a really dire warning for us that if we think that we can live a compromise experience, have a dual citizenship and that we're going to have the soundness of mind and even the desire to respond, that's not guaranteed mm-hmm. for one. Later when things get bad. We can't live as if that's gonna actually be the case. Lot is a unique example, but there are just as many people like Lot who didn't respond Mm -hmm. and get saved at the end of the day. But then on the other end, to assume that you're gonna be able to have any form of witnessing power when things get bad and you're gonna put, it's not gonna happen either. So much so that his daughters choose their husbands. Yeah, there's not four daughters that come out of the city, there's only the two virgin daughters that leave the city. And so then we get back to the narrative. So it came to pass when he brought him outside, escape your lives. And then they tell them, do not look behind you. This is verse 17 of chapter 19. Don't look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain, escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And then Lot said, he argues with the angels who've been sent to save his life. Who are saving him, like on the way out. No, he says, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you've increased your mercy which you've shown me by saving my life. I can't go to the mountains where you've told me to go, lest some evil overtake me and I die. If I go where you have called me to go,
0: I'll die. This this has to be the most ironic statement in that, oh, I can't go to that place. That place is dangerous, (laughs) says the guy who (laughs) pitched his tent towards Sodom and moved in. Yeah,
1: and this is what sin does to us. It makes us stupid. Sin is not your friend. And this is what we have to see. God's mercy is so, pr- look at how many interventions, I didn't count here, but there's so many ways in which they are touching him, prodding him, nudging him, and assisting him when all it really should have taken was one thing. Yeah. We've come to destroy this city. You know what, man? I knew this all along. I'm sorry. Let's get out of here right now. That's not him. Mm-hmm. He is wrestling with letting go of this place, even as they're saving his life and about to nuke the place. Right. This is how deeply embedded he is and enmeshed he is with a place he never should have been. Leaving it is unthinkable. I, I just can't. And then when they finally get into a point of actually leaving, I can't trust you mm-hmm. enough to go where you're telling me to go. God is not enough for this man. Mm-hmm. He's even wanting to call the shots on how his life gets saved by a divine intervention. Oh. And so... Then they tell him, and so the amazing thing to me is they acquiesce. Yeah, They let him go. He says, let me just go to this place, to Zoar, I think it is. Is it not a small city? But once he gets to Zoar and he sees, and then it says in verse 24, the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord. There's two Yahwehs in that text, by the way. Mm-hmm. Jesus ar- arrives in the city and calls down fire from heaven and destroys the city. He finally gets there, and the place is destroyed, but his wife looks back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. The crazy thing is once Lot sees what happens to the city, he goes to the mountains anyway, because he's afraid. Mm-hmm. He eventually goes where they tell him to go. But his wife looks back. His wife had so immersed herself in the culture and things of Sodom that it would be as death to her mm-hmm. to leave it. Right. The irony is as she's being pulled out by God, it still leads her to die mm-hmm. because she can't leave it. She looks back in her heart. And this is why Jesus gives the warning in Matthew chapter 24. But Jesus gives this warning in kind of his apocalyptic prophecies of the end times. He mentions in multiple gospel narratives remember Lot's wife, and as it was in the days of Lot, right? He alludes to this idea. There are lessons for you in that narrative that will apply in this end time scenario. Mm. If you cannot envision your life being enjoyable or livable, apart from the worldly entanglements you have right now, it most likely can cost you your life, Mm. barring a divine intervention. And if you find yourself in that, I, I couldn't leave this guy. I just couldn't, right? I couldn't leave this girl. I couldn't leave this job. I couldn't leave this city. If you cannot bring yourself to be open to even thinking about disentangling yourself from some of these scenarios, this is a, a very dangerous and precarious place to be. The good news is the mercy of God will even follow you into that mm. and keep calling you and pursuing you. And we see that in this narrative. But why, why send them away? Right. Why push them
0: away? Why not listen? I listen. mean, his, his wife dies. Yeah. And I think part of that's on him he she' can't, on she can't let go yeah fair enough that's on her but she was she's not gonna be there if it's not for him
1: absolutely this responsibility lies at his doorstep he's the one that chose to put his family there so the loss of his two daughters and sons-in-law and his wife falls at his doorstep because you chose to fully embed yourself in a place that you never should have been. Mm. And, and God, even in his great mercy, he pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Wouldn't be caught dead in that place. Now finds himself living in Sodom. The place is sacked. He's taken captive. This is the goodness and mercy of God reminding him, this isn't your home. It reminds me of Elijah. What are you doing here?
0: Mm.
1: Whenever God speaks to Elijah in the cave, who sent you here?
0: I didn't call you here. This place is not for you.
1: But I'm not giving up on you because you are here. Mm. And I think this is an important lesson for us. Some of us may find ourselves in a deeply compromised position right now. And I hope you take consolation of the fact that God is still pursuing. Maybe what you're hearing right now is that warning shot to mm. you. Maybe it is that invitation of mercy. You don't have to stay. I know, it's, I know it seems really scary. You've, you've, put a, you've invested a lot into whatever you're in right now, a relationship, a job, an education, where you live, It could be you've invested a lot and the risk just seems too great to you. This text is warning us. The Spirit of God is warning us. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. And I have
0: a place of safety for you outside of this scenario. What does it cost Lot to live a worldly life and then get saved in the end? It costs him everything. And Jesus warned everyone, watch for the signs of Noah and of Lot. And we get Noah, right? The world is ending. Get in the ark. You can be saved. But the warning of Lot is that you're not saved. That you cannot wait until the very end before turning to God. You've got to let it go. Let go of the world. Let go of whatever it is you're holding on to and learn. As if today is the last day you'll ever live. Learn to trust in the Lord.
2: I'm drowning in fire Even if it's just inside my head I want to expire And do all the things I said
1: eventually he's going to have to honor your decision yeah. to no longer continue communion. And the trajectory doesn't look good for him, certainly. Yeah. And this is this is a, a, the thing that we need to think through, that God's mercy is pleading with us to respond, but why can't we let go? And so he loses his wife, and then they get to the cave, and it's terrible, right? Um, it says in verse 29 that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow. This is amazing to me. For those who are praying for their children, praying for their spouses, praying for their family and their coworkers, do not miss this point of the narrative. Mm. God remembered Abraham. In saving Lot. In saving him. So these, God cares about the things that you care about. The very fact that you have care for another human being is evidence that the spirit of God is doing something in your life. Because our default mode is selfishness right? That's what we do. Mm. And in this scenario, God is pursuing, and, and but God honored it. He saves Lot first with his sword, Abraham does, and then he saves him through prayer. And I'm so thankful this narrative at least gives this reminder. And so they get to the cave, Lot went up to Zoar, dwelt in the mountains, and then he goes to the mountains. And his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. This is an irony. He was afraid to go to the mountains, now he's afraid to go to... His whole life is filled with fear and instability. Why? he has no longer trusted God with his decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And if this continues without divine intervention, it will be a death sentence like it was for his wife. Yeah. But there was a deeper root structure for him than her, apparently. But it was his example that led to her being lost. So what good is it? it it's, mm-hmm. it's this awful conundrum to be in, right? But there's still some seeds in here. And so the firstborn said to the younger... In verse 31, our father is old, and there's no man in the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. So let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie with them, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Her brilliant idea that she learned through the school systems of Sodom was let's get dad drunk and sleep with him. I'll go first, and then you go, or you go first, and I go, whatever the order was. Lot, by the grace of God and intervention of angels, somehow got his daughters out of Sodom. But Sodom never really was removed from their hearts. And this is the heartbreaking thing. And what they eventually, this actually happens. They actually sleep with their dad. And the two children they have out of this become the Ammonites and the Moabites, two perpetual thorns in the
0: side of the nation of Israel. And we find yet, you know, like you said, you look at this man's legacy, you look at all of these decisions, it's it's almost as if every time we come across Lot, he does something dumb. And yeah. we get to the place his two oldest daughters are dead. His wife is dead. The city that he loves so much is destroyed. Probably his friends. Yeah, you can imagine he had friends there all gone. He's he's disobeying even on the way out, arguing with with his saviors. This man is biblically speaking, I guess you could even, he's a fool. Yeah, and and what the, what he leaves behind is this tarnished legacy. There's no doubt. And then we find in Second Peter that it says that just Lot was delivered. Not 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 like solely Lot, but that Lot was just that he was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. This is Second Peter two seven, and then verse eight says, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. And you read that, and if it doesn't mention Lot, you'd have no idea that it's Lot, because this doesn't sound like the Lot that we see you know, from Genesis 13 to Genesis 19. It's almost as if God goes back and kind of changes history, rewrites it in a way that's favorable for Lot, calls him just and, and righteous, and yet we don't see that in the example, so, like, why why can
1: God do that? Mm. I guess, you know, this also reminds me of a similar narrative in Romans four. So Abraham traffics his wife twice, mm-hmm. right? Says she's his sister. Farms her off to other people who could have slept with her and done all kinds of terrible things. God intervenes in both scenarios and saves her life. She stays with him, by the way, which is pretty amazing when you mm-hmm. think about it. As a newly married man myself, you're a married man. Like, hey, this is a. I don't think our wives would appreciate us trafficking them once, let alone twice. That's it, yeah. It's over. Uh, Yeah, it's done. (laughs) But then we find another scenario where he laughs in God's face when God says, I'm going to give you a child. In Genesis 15, Abraham says that you're not enough. He struggles with God saying he's enough. And then he sleeps with a teenage handmaid, right? We don't know how much of her will is involved in this situation, by the way. It doesn't look very good, right, in the narrative. Mm. The difference with Abraham is that Abraham keeps getting up and pursuing God. He wants to honor God, but he also is living in human flesh, and there's a struggle there. Mm. In moments, he takes the wheel, but then he lets go and says, no, wait a minute, God, I want to honor you. I'm sorry. He takes the wheel again. No, 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 wait, I want to honor you, God. I'm sorry. And that difference of taking responsibility plays a big role in the difference between him and Lot to, to some degree as far as what you see play out in their general life. But then we see in Romans chapter 4 that Paul has the audacity to say these things about Abraham, even though we have this narrative in Genesis doesn't look that great. Mm -hmm. That yet he did, speaking of Abraham, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. Mm. Then you see the narrative in 1 Kings 14, 8, that uh, God, after David is dead and buried, says that you've not been like my servant David who only walked in obedience continually and alludes to this idea. And you think, well, uh, what about the situation with Bathsheba, which isn't consensual, by the way. Mm-hmm. David raped her. David used his power to take her, the text says. He sent people to take her. He gets what he wants. She goes back to her house. She just informs him that she's pregnant and she weeps and grieves over the death of her husband. Her will is not employed in this narrative from what the text itself says. Mm. Many people say you know, that she was you know, seducing him or whatever. like That's not what's going on in the narrative. He took, he took, he took. She grieved. She loses her husband. And yet in all these narratives, after the fact, after their death, God is saying something about them that doesn't seem to be the way the narrative of Scripture reads initially. And you think, one, does God have divine amnesia? <laughs> and how can he have the audacity to say that? Well, the answer is actually found in Romans 4. If you go to Romans chapter 4, So I quoted from verses 20 and 21. If you go to verse 17, there's this very fascinating statement. Um, In Romans chapter 4, verse 7. we'll go to verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that might be according to grace, that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law. Then verse 17, it says that, um, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Speaking of Abraham, those who are of the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. He says, I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom... He believed God, who gives life to the dead. And then it says something fascinating. Mm. It says, then it calls those things that do not exist as though they did. Mm. How can God call things that do not exist as though they did? Here's the variable Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Righteousness was not inherently a trait of Abraham. Mm. Righteousness was not inherently a trait of David. Righteousness was not a trait inherently within Lot. But when they saw their need of Jesus, when they saw the weakness of their humanity, they placed their faith in Jesus who declared them righteous. It's not because they lived righteously. No man can do that apart from the grace of Christ working within a man. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Those are not natural instincts for human nature. So when the Bible refers to someone as doing anything of a righteous sort, it's because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ being manifest in them. We see this in Hebrews 11. People call it the hall of faith. I'm not a big fan of that language Mm. for this reason. The entire book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Jesus. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the priesthood. He has a better sacrifice and better blood. He makes a better promise, uh, a better covenant built upon better promises. Why is the whole book about the supremacy of Jesus? And then all of a sudden, there's an interlude talking about how awesome people were. (laughs) That's not what's going on there. That was the faith of Jesus in these people. That's what's being alluded to in Hebrews 11. And that's why it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the one who authored the story of righteousness in anyone's life in Scripture and made righteousness even possible. So God isn't
0: rewriting our stories. He's simply showing exactly how they were written.
1: Yeah. And what he's basically writing is justification. Some people say it's just as if I never sinned. It's just as if Jesus lived my life, mm. right? He, he's living my life in my stead. I'm declared as having lived the life that he lived by faith, right? That's the point that he declares me righteous, right? There's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible says, but there is one. Mm. There is one faithful Israelite who lived a faithful, just life and it's Jesus. He lived it in my flesh and in your flesh.
0: So we can read the story of Lot, see what is to all extents and purposes, an unrighteous man. And yet God is well within his right to call him righteous because of what Jesus did. And because Lot did, he did, put his trust in God in leaving that time. And that's the difference.
1: And eventually, like there has to be a narrative in Lot's life that's probably passed beyond what we see in the narrative where there's a soul crushing repentance. Abraham sees his need of Jesus and turns course. David sees his need of Jesus and turns course. This is how this works, right? Mm. When we come to ourselves, this says about the prodigal son, and realize what we have done, and we fall on the rock and are broken, when we come into his presence, he will not cast us out. That's the promise of John chapter six that he who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And if we come unto Jesus seeking mercy, we will find mercy. Is Jesus saying, live whatever life you want? party, live it up, doesn't matter. At the end, I'm just going to save you and love you anyway. That's not That's not the invitation. The reason why Jesus gives the firm warning of remember Lot's wife is because it's so dangerous to live as they lived. Do not presumptuously think, I can just do that and, and pull my chute at the very end and land safely at the end of the day. This is not guaranteed. It's not even recommended to live this way. But in this scenario, the difference is when someone, even if your story has been filled with so many bad decisions, God has not been enough for you. The good news is God has been pursuing you every step of the way. And if you come boldly into his presence, First John 1:9 promises us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the original language actually reads differently. It's if, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to separate us from our sins mm. and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The story of bad decision after bad decision and bad decision that you've made all throughout your life can be changed when you come into the presence of Jesus and confess. He can separate, as far as the east is from the west, he can cast our sins, we're promised in scripture. First John 1-9 alludes to that, the same idea, the idea of separating two parties. This is what he offers us. And so I take consolation in this, that if I've been living a stubborn, get mine, do me life all the way until now, there's a faithful God in heaven. First of all, for many of us, there's people who are praying for us. And when we get a recollection of where home really is and that what I'm doing isn't working, it's probably a result of somebody's prayers in our behalf, for one. And two, we can respond even then. God's mercy is still pursuing us. And at this stage, we see that God can even rewrite your... Maybe your story's been a mess. You've done even worse things in Abraham, David, and Lot combined. If you come boldly into the presence of Jesus, he can rewrite your story as if Jesus lived in your stead. That's the promise of scripture.
0: He that hath an ear, let him hear. And you've just heard our latest show. If you'd like to hear more or harken back to a previous episode, you can find us now at WTDTPodcast.com. If you've been moved by this ministry through this episode or others, and you'd like to support us financially, you can become a patron. And if you do, you'll get early access to our episodes, discounts on our store, and access to our other podcast, a 40-day devotional podcast designed to kickstart your walk with God. We're calling it WTDT40. If this sounds like something you're interested in or you just want to support in general, visit patreon.com forward slash WTDT to find out more. As always, please do subscribe, leave us a review and follow our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook and now TikTok too. We'll see you on the next episode. Once again, I'm Dean Cullinane and you're listening to Why They Did That.